So let me, this might sound like an odd question, but what is the difference between a sports fan and an athlete? Um, think about it. What sets an athlete apart from just a fan of a sport? I was, I was reflecting on this question, and one of the things that stood out to me is that it's not necessarily the, a knowledge of the game. Yes, obviously, the athletes have a deep and intimate knowledge of the sports that they're competing in, but, I mean, think about some of the fans out there of sports. You might be one of them. Like, it's, it's a, it blows my mind at times to consider how, um, just how much knowledge, like, football fans have of every player and their stats, every single team, their, their win-loss records, even just like when it comes to the strategy and game mechanics, people understand um, and know how to play really well, um, even as a fan. So it's not, not even necessarily a knowledge of the game that sets athletes apart from their fans. Um, or it, it's not even necessarily in the level of excitement that they have in the game. Again, I think about diehard fans that I know, and I have seen people openly weep at their teams losing. I've seen people have panic attacks because they're worried that their team's going to lose. Like People love their sports teams and competitors. And so um, sometimes they care more about the, the game than the, the players themselves even do. So again, it's not even necessarily that level of excitement or passion for the sport that sets the athletes apart. So, so what is it that sets athletes apart? Um, the difference, ultimately what it comes down to, is the actual experience of the sport itself. The athletes are the ones who play and compete. The fans don't. They observe. They watch. The athletes are the ones who practice and who strive to do well. They're the ones who ultimately win or lose. The fans don't. Like I said, the fans are the ones who are observing and watching the game, but it's the athletes who are actually doing it, living it out. And because of that, it's the athletes who ultimately get the victories. They're the ones that get the medals. They're the ones that get the prizes and the trophies and the acclaim. You'll never see a fan in the Hall of Fame for a sport. You only see the athletes in the Halls of Fame. Um, it's the competitors who make it there. And I bring this question up, and I bring up this idea, um, because in our passage today, James is, in a sense, making that same point when it comes to Christianity. It's those who really run the race with Christ, those who pursue him and follow him, who do that actively, um, who will see victory and eternal life. The question, in a sense, he's posing is, are you a fan of Jesus only? You're just observing, you know about him, um, but you're just watching, um, not interacting, not active and participating. Are you a fan or are you actually following him? Do you only know about him, or are you actively seeking his glory? James wants us to think about that, and he wants us to think about it deeply. Um, the, the last couple weeks have been building to, well, present this same argument that I'm kind of concluding today. Travis started it two weeks ago. Um, Keith continued it last week. And then kind of my passage this morning is kind of the, 
the final thoughts on what is really James's ultimate thesis in, in his entire letter. Um, and it, it deals with this idea. It's, it's the purpose and the heart behind um, what he's writing to the churches about. Um, if you want his thesis, it's looking at James 1, basically verses, roughly verses 19 through 27. Um, and so that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to be preaching specifically on verses 26 and 27 today. But um, I want you guys to turn to James 1 in your Bibles now because we're actually going to read the whole passage that I was just talking about. We're going to read verses 19 through 27 um, because, like I said, it's presenting one, one continuous, one full argument and point. And I want you guys to get that because if you can get the whole idea, verses 26 and 27 will make a lot more sense. Um, so if you can, turn in the black Bibles in the pews. That's uh, page uh, 1011. Or if you have your own Bible, of course, you can turn there and there. But um, we're going to look at James 1, verses 19 through 27. I'm going to read that, and I just want you to follow along as I do. So let me read that. Um, James 1, 19 through 27 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we haven't talked about this since we started this series through James. Caleb talked about this a little bit when he started off this book for us. But we named this series the Everyday Gospel because in a sense of what James has just said to us. Christianity is a religion where our everyday lives are changed by what we believe. Our faith changes everything. It changes how we talk to each other. It changes how we plan for our futures. It changes how we steward our money. Um, it even changes the very feelings we have and the things that we hope for and long for. Christianity is a religion of transformation in the lives of those who are true followers and adherents of it. It's not just a religion of knowledge like so many religions in the world are, or unfortunately like so many even Christians think it is. Um, it has everyday implications, um, and those implications are what James is writing about. We, we see that when he's talking about being doers of the word rather than hearers. He, he wants the gospel to impact our everyday lives. Um, he wants us to know the gospel of Jesus Christ um, calls us to live each and every day differently. 
to not just hear the gospel, but to live it out. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, like I said earlier, not just a fan of him. And James is warning us because far too many people will face Jesus on the last day claiming that they knew him, but they will be cast out of his sight because their lives proved that they didn't actually love him at all. They were fans, not followers. The gospel didn't reach into their everyday lives and change anything. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that us? If someone observed your life, if someone could hear your thoughts as you think them in your day-to-day life, would it be clear to them that Jesus is the focal point of your life? Or do you give him as much attention as you give your laundry each week? Is your life fundamentally oriented around him? Or do you only pay attention to him, like, like your laundry, when things start to smell or get messy or things just stack up against you in your life? The reality is that true Christians put off sin and put on holiness. And that's a daily activity that we, we do. And that's what I want you to get out of this sermon. And that's what you'll see in verses 26 and 27. True Christians put off sin and put on holiness. And that's in contrast to those who claim to know Christ, but they continue in their sin with unchanged lives. James is warning us against being such people. He wants us to investigate our hearts if that is what our lives look like. So to see what James is teaching and to see how he's teaching that, I want to start by looking at the first verse and considering what it says about our relationship with our sin. Then I'm going to focus on verse 27 and consider the two ways that it calls us to live holy lives. And so we'll look, our second point really has two subpoints, and we'll, we'll look at verse 27 when we get there. As I said before, we'll see how true religion entails a putting off of one thing and a putting on of something else. We see that theme throughout Scripture. Paul uses that language explicitly. We don't see that specifically here, explicitly in James, but he's communicating the same idea. He's calling us to put off sin and put on holiness, to put on Christ-likeness. There's this profound exchange that takes place in the Christian's life when we become followers of Jesus. Um, And that's that's an exchange, that's a, a shift that a lot of people overlook, and we don't want to do that. We want to be reminded of that this morning because that's what James is reminding us of. Um, So that's what we're going to pay attention to this morning. So first, true Christians put off sin. So how does this passage teach us that? Let's look again at verse 26. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. So, James's point is pretty straightforward here. He's arguing that Christians must put off their sin, or they aren't Christians. That's ultimately what he's saying. The scenario involves a person, let's name this fictitious person Bob, for instance, who calls himself a Christian. He claims to have faith in Jesus. He... Um, he probably knows the gospel and he can explain it to you if you ask him what it is. Um, he may even be really involved in Christian fellowship. However, Bob has a foul mouth. Um, he swears. He doesn't think before he speaks. 
He says rude or hurtful things to people, and he doesn't seem to care about the harm he's causing and the bridges he's burning. James is saying that Bob is fooling himself if he thinks he's a Christian. Bob's religion, his supposed faith in Jesus Christ, is worthless. It's dead. It's not real. But how... Um, but how can James say that? How can he know that? That's, what, that's my first thought when I think about him making that claim. Um, and it's because Bob doesn't even want to work on controlling his tongue. That's what he's, he, he's highlighting here. Such a person should see the unloving, hurtful, God-dishonoring things that he's saying, and he should want to stop saying them. He should be convicted about his sin. He should grieve it. Um, he should want to put off that sin in his life if he's a Christian. That's a natural inclination of a Christian's heart. And if that desire doesn't exist, then he should begin to question whether or not he actually knows and follows Christ. When I read verse 26, I'm really struck by the bluntness that James is using here. He's really straightforward about it. There's no qualifiers given. If Bob or anyone else is taking step, isn't taking any steps to kill their sin, then they simply aren't Christians. That's what he's saying. The question that immediately comes to mind, though, when I hear a statement like that, is, are you really sure you want to put it that way, James? Like, are you sure you don't want to be more nuanced than that? You're coming very close to saying that this person's standing, as a Christian, is dependent specifically on his works. And that concern, actually, of mine gets even worse when you look at verse 27. So look with me at that really quick. Verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So my immediate thought when I read those verses is where is the grace and faith here? James says nothing about them. He sounds, honestly, pretty works-based to me. It sounds like true religion, true faith, is dependent upon how you live your life, the works that you're doing. That's where our righteousness comes from. Is he saying that? How do we deal with that idea? Um, and this is where context is key. If you look at these two verses independent of everything else, then they seem to imply something very different than what they're meant to say. When you consider them in the larger context, though, their meaning becomes clear. Um, and this is why I wanted to read more than just these two verses at the beginning. But, but let me show you what I mean by that. Look with me at verse 18. I didn't read this earlier, but look with me at it now. It says, Of his own will, this is speaking of God, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So when I preached on this passage a few weeks ago, I showed how the word of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So of his own will, he brought us forth by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And we know that he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because if you look down 
at chapter 2, verse 1, he explicitly is talking about that. And there's the same flow of thought. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So that's what he's talking about with this word of truth. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, according to his own will, made us sons and daughters by granting us faith in the gospel. But then, James reiterates that in verse 21. So, we looked at James 1.18. Now look down at verse 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Even though James is calling us to do something here, he's calling us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, um, our souls aren't saved by what we do. We're saved, look at what it says, what saves us. We're saved by the implanted word that we receive from God. Salvation is given to us by grace, it's not earned. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing, as I was just saying, even as we see James saying there in verse 21. Um, That is the point James is trying to make. In our verses, as I said earlier, the word that saves us transforms us. It will bear fruit in our lives. We aren't saved, um, we, we are saved through our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once we are saved, we will begin living in accordance with that gospel. That is James's point when talking about hearing versus doing in verses 20 through, t- through 25. And finally, if you're still unsure about his meaning, James clarifies it even more in chapter 2. If you flip the page, look at um, James 2, verses 17 and 18. He says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So that's what he's emphasizing. Redeemer, James is not calling us to a different works-based salvation. He's not going against everything else that the rest of the New Testament is teaching us. We've got to understand that, or we will misinterpret what he says in the rest of his letter. He agrees that we are saved by grace through faith, that is implanted in us by God. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we earn or merit for ourselves. But he is calling our attention to the fact that our faith should evidence itself in our lives through less rebellion and more obedience to God. He's trying to warn us against the enticing thought and notion that the Christian life can accommodate, that we can accommodate our sin, that we can leave it alone and not deal with it. Um, He desperately wants us to understand that Christians should not and cannot let sin gain a foothold in our lives. It will lead to our destruction if we let it. Now, James has the same kind of mindset that I would say we see in John as well. Listen as I read what John says in 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. He says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we are children of God, then we are children of light, not darkness anymore. 
Therefore, we won't want to continue in sin, which is darkness. It's in, they're in opposition to one another. So our desire won't ultimately want to be to continue in sin. And listen to 1 John 3, verses 6 through 9. John says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So John, like James, is not saying that we are saved by not sinning. He is saying that we won't, to, won't want to keep on sinning if we truly are saved. As, as he said there, we have the seed of God that abides in us. We have the Holy Spirit that abides within us and convicts us of sin and leads us to want to change when we see sin patterns in our lives. Again, like I've said before, understand this, that Christianity is a story of transformation because we have a Savior who is continually transforming us. First, God transformed our unbelief into faith. We now believe that Jesus died on the cross for us. We were not capable of believing that with our old, sinful, dead hearts, but we can because God has transformed us. God has transformed us by uniting us with Jesus. Through his sacrifice and not our works, the penalty and power of sin has been defeated in our lives. We are no longer guilty of it and no longer enslaved to it. We have a new nature that is opposed to our sin. And so there, there's that other fundamental transformation that we have experienced in our conversion but then it's ongoing as well. God also transforms us every single day through his spirit. Since the moment of conversion, he's guarding us, he's strengthening us, he's comforting us, he convicts us, he's sanctifying us. He gives us new righteous desires to replace our old sinful ones. And then he empowers us to pursue them. We're not left to just read the Bible, find out what we need to do, and then just grit our teeth and do it on our own strength. No, he's actively empowering us by his Holy Spirit to walk in obedience um, and to kill sin. All of that is to say a Christian is a new being. We are utterly different from who we once were. So one who has been so one has to have a fundamentally wrong understanding of the gospel and what it means in our lives and how it's changed us if we think that the Christian life can look exactly the same as the pre-Christian life. They're, they're utterly different. That doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with sin. Of course, we're going to continue to struggle with that until Christ returns and utterly eradicates sin and temptation. We are still going to struggle with it in this life. But it doesn't have mastery over us like it once did. It's not our ultimate desire like it once was. Our ultimate desire is to kill the sin 
like we're going to look at more, put on holiness. So that is why James says our religion is worthless in James 1, 26, if we do not bridle our tongues. It's not because good speech saves us. It's because our efforts to speak rightly and lovingly are a demonstration of the work that Christ has done and is doing in us by his Spirit. It's evidence of our relationship with him. The bridling of our tongues is just one example of the fruit that our faith will bear in us. If there is no fruit, then we can't trust that the Holy Spirit is there. And if there's no Holy Spirit, then there's no relationship with Jesus. And if there's no relationship with Jesus, then there is no salvation or pure and undefiled religion, as James is talking about in these verses. We are deceiving our own hearts to think otherwise. So friends, as I said before, we must not make accommodations for sin in our lives. That is James's plea with us in verse 26. We must seek to kill it, to mortify it, which is the word. If you ever read any of the Puritans, when they talk about killing sin, they'll say mortify sin. Uh, if we make room for sin in our lives, it will destroy our souls and prove us to be self-deceiving about our faith. Um, John Owen, many of you know who that is, the Puritan, um, he addresses that in his book of the mortification of sin and believers. I really encourage you guys, if you haven't read it before, I encourage you to read it. Um, the language is a bit archaic and hard to understand, and John Owen himself is not the easiest person to read just in general, but much of what he says is gold if you can take the time to think through and process what he's saying. Um, so I encourage you to read his book of the mortification of sin and believers, but he, he says this in, in that book. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting us, but if let alone if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. And so he explains what he means there with some examples. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. There is not the best saint in the world, but if he should give over the duty of mortification of sin, would fall into as many cursed sins as ever any did of his kind. James would agree with John Owen. We can and must put off the sin in our lives. That is a true mark of a Christian. And we do it by faith and reliance upon our Savior. We put our hope in Christ who conquered our sin for us. And we trust in the Holy Spirit who empowers and strengthens us to kill sin. That's what faith-fueled, grace-driven mortification of sin is. It's not doing it because we think we have to do it to save ourselves. We, 
We're doing it because we know that work has already been done by Jesus Christ. And so we are just living in light and in, just in the majesty of that reality. That's a difficult battle to face. I know so many of you, myself included, experience temptations where we are just so burdened and weighed down by fighting against them day in and day out. But we should do it. We must do it. And we can trust that the Spirit will help us in that battle. That battle is hard, but it's a tremendous one because it's a, it allows us to see and to demonstrate the power and goodness and love of our God who has freed us from sin. And that brings me to my second point, because James doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just call us to put off sin. We've got to replace it with something else. If we're going to take something off, what are we going to put on? And that's where he gets what he's really talking about in verse 27. He's calling us to put holiness on in response. So look with me at verse 27. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now it's helpful to first note what James is not saying here. James is not saying that visiting orphans and widows, um, as he says in the first kind of segment, and then in the second segment, avoiding worldliness, are the only two forms of true worship. That's not what he's saying. He isn't trying to list, he's not trying to give us a comprehensive list of every type of worship that we can do. Rather, he is giving us two examples that highlight the two larger categories of holiness that our lives should display and demonstrate if we're truly Christians. The first, exemplified by the visiting of the widows and the orphans and their affliction, is this idea of social concern and justice and compassion. Our lives as Christians should be marked by a compassion for and support of the helpless and needy. The second category, exemplified by keeping oneself unstained from the world, is the category of personal piety, if you want to call it that. Our lives as Christians should not only be marked by the social concern and compassion, by our acts of service, but also by a devotion to pursuing personal purity and godliness. It's not an either-or. It's not, make sure you're doing one of these. He's saying to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Holiness demands both. Pure and undefiled religion displays both social concern and compassion and personal piety. Consider yourself. What one do you devote more attention to in your own personal life? On the other hand, which one do you think about do you maybe give less attention to? Do you perhaps neglect? My guess, and this isn't the case with everyone, but my guess is that some of us will lean more towards one over the other. Some of you will jump at opportunities to serve those around you. You're eager to, to help with social activism and to help the homeless and to, to care for the needy. 
Um, you want to make the world a better place for others. You love to volunteer and donate your time and energy and money and resources to social causes. You like to spark up conversations with people you don't even know, and you're always looking for ways to help. If that is you, praise God for that. I love that. Keep that up. But don't neglect personal purity also. Don't excuse maybe a lack of biblical knowledge and study as long as you're giving to the poor and loving the people around you. Be diligent in both. On the other hand, some of you are probably more introspective. You're, you're really concerned about the sin in your life and you want to kill it. Um, you're eager disciples. You have spent a lot of time developing your spiritual disciplines. You're quick to study in prayer. You want to develop a robust theological understanding of the Bible to help you grow in your own faith and walk with the Lord. If that's you, praise God for that. Again, I am so thankful that I know that there are many, many people in this congregation that are like that. Just don't neglect social compassion and concern as well. Don't ignore the needs of others around you by just focusing on your own growth. Care for others as well. Be diligent in both. And I, I just encourage you guys to ask this question and to know yourself in this way um, because I encourage all of us to seek to stretch ourselves in whatever category we're weaker in. And most importantly, do it as a demonstration of your love for Christ. That is key. Both social concern and personal piety are aspects of pure and undefiled religion because they highlight different aspects of Christ's own nature. They reflect him. That is, that is why they are pure and undefiled and good for us. When we are putting off sin and putting on these aspects of holiness, we aren't doing it to save ourselves, as, as we've already talked about. We're doing it because we want to become more like Jesus. We are seeking to reflect him and put his beauty and goodness on display to the world. So let your putting on of holiness be an overflow of your appreciation for Christ. Let it be, even for yourself, a reminder of what is true and proclaimed in the gospel. So take social compassion, for instance, first. We are called by James to help the helpless. That's ultimately what he's saying there when he's saying, visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Help the helpless. Provide for the needy. Support and care for them. Well, is that not exactly what Jesus has done for us? We have a God who has entered into a sinful, disgusting world to save a people who could not save themselves. He went where we would never want to go ourselves to save people who needed saving. He came to heal the sick and care for the poor. And he went to the greatest lengths imaginable to protect us from the punishment that we have earned for ourselves. He went to the cross for us. He made that sacrifice. So before you begin focusing on how you're going to help others, take the time to consider your own helpless state. 
without Jesus. We were all orphans before we were adopted by the Father through him. We were all spiritually poor and destitute until we became heirs with Christ. We were all utterly helpless before Jesus came into our lives and saved us from our sins. So we don't just care for the needy because we are commanded to do so. We do it because it is an opportunity to imitate the very same compassion and love that Jesus has shown to us. Out of what he has given us, we get to overflow that same love and compassion through our lives. He is the fountain that is overflowing our cups so that we can sacrifice for others, that we can radically serve when it's inconvenient and painful for us so that others might be benefited and built up. Because that's exactly, again, what Jesus has done for us. We can prefer others because he preferred us. Our sacrifices, when we go out of our way to serve and care for others, even others that no one else wants to help, we are doing it in memory of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. But then also, consider the personal piety aspect. We are called by James to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Well, again, is that not exactly what Jesus has done for us? He faced temptation after temptation after temptation from Satan himself, and he overcame all of them because he is God, and so that we could be so that we could have a pure and unblemished lamb of God as our sacrifice. Because he was without sin, he was able to take our sins upon himself. Because he was righteous while on earth, we can be justified through our union with him. So we don't just pursue personal piety, again, because we are commanded to do so. We do it because it's our our opportunity to resemble our perfect, holy, and glorious Lord. To be righteous is to be like him, and that's what we want to be. Plus, as Christians, we have the freedom to admit our sins and repent of them because we know that that we have been redeemed and justified by Christ already. There's a freedom and liberation that we experience in that. Because we know that the guilt of our sin is no longer upon us, that we are justified in Christ, that actually empowers us to admit our sins, to recognize them, and to walk in holiness instead. It empowers our pursuit of holiness. Our sanctification happens as we become more and more okay with acknowledging and confronting our sins because we know that we no longer bear the guilt of them. Instead of hiding our sins and trying to ignore or minimize them, we have the freedom to face them and to kill them. As Christians, we are fundamentally changed. We no longer want to live for what feels right. We want to live for what is right. We want to be people of the word of God rather than people of of the world. We want to be people who glorify Jesus. And we want to do that through incredible acts of charity and sacrifice and service um, amongst each other and especially even in the community outside. 
when we serve others selflessly and when we seek to do what is right and pure, we show the world that Christ is our greatest treasure. I was, when, when I was reflecting on this, it, it made me think of an apt example for this. But parents, think about it. Why do your kids pick up your habits? For good or for bad, why do they pick up your habits? Why do they imitate you? Why do they say the things that you say and do the things that, they, that you do? They do it because they love you. They do it because they look up to you and because for them you embody everything that is good. Redeemer, let's have that same childlike attitude towards our, our Lord and Savior. Let's pick up his habits. Let's imitate him. Let's say and do what he has said and done. And let's do all of that because we are in awe of him, because we love him, because we look up to him. Let's put on holiness, not so much because we have to, but because we get to do it. Redeemer, let's be a church that is known for putting off our sins and putting on holiness. If we have a Lord and Savior who has freed us from our enslavement to sin, let's not be a church that continues to wear those shackles. Let's take our sin seriously and kill it. I was, as I was reflecting on this last night, I was just picturing what, what it would look for us to just like fully and deeply embrace the gospel as a church. I think we're doing that. We're growing in that each and every day. But what would it look like for us to just like radically and profoundly do that? Um, and it was, it was just, it was amazing for me to think about it. I had this picture of this church in my mind where we are so confident in our justification that we don't feel the need to hide our sins any longer. So in terms of the putting off of our sin, we don't feel the need to hide them any longer. We're quick and bold in our confessions to one another. We're eager to repent. We ask for help from one another in battling even the most embarrassing sins that we want to pretend like we don't have. We hate our sin more than we even fear one another. We receive accountability well. And because of that, sin's power is weakening in all of us in in significant and profound ways. Isn't that an, an incredible picture to think about? Again, I think that's happening. But let's seek to live that out even more profoundly as a, as a congregation and as a church. But there's more than that, though. In that same picture in my mind, I was thinking about if we were also a church that's so eager to reflect our Lord that we are genuinely enjoying doing good and giving selflessly. A pursuit of holiness isn't begrudging but it's eager. We're excited about it. There are times when flesh is waging war against us and we'll want to do what's wrong, but we fight that war together. And we devote ourselves to service and humility and love towards others. In this picture in my mind, we're known as a church for our radical demonstrations of selflessness and, and compassion in the community and with each other. In fact, those radical demonstrations become the norm so that they eventually cease to even become radical and they're just commonplace in the life of this church. 
Let's strive after that together. Let's, let's seek that. Redeemer, let's be that church, a church that puts off sin and puts on holiness. That is a church that is demonstrating its trust in Christ and its hope in the gospel. As James says, that is a church that is pure and, and undefiled religion. So let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, God, help us to be that church more and more. God, thank you for the work that you have already done in us as our faithful and good shepherd over this flock. Thank you for the ways that you have already been growing and transforming each and every member of this congregation. But God, let us not just settle. Let us not grow complacent. Let us not be um, okay with things just continuing as, our, as they are. But God, help us to really desire to put off the sin in our lives and to put on holiness, to, to be selfless, to be servant-hearted, to be pure and righteous in the ways that we live with each other and even privately, God. We want to put on display your incredible Son and his gospel. I pray this in his name. Amen.